the most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Zneimer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. Sobeys is becoming the first national grocery chain to ban single-use plastic bags. As of February, customers will either have to bring their own bags or use paper bags, which Sobeys will provide. Is this a decision which will make you want to switch to Sobeys or stay loyal to the grocery chain if you already shop there? Libby Snymer spoke about the plastic bag ban at Sobeys with Michelle Gentner, co-owner of Unboxed Market, Keith Brooks, program director at Environmental Defense, and Vittoria Varali, Sobeys VP of Sustainability. Our customers and our fellow teammates across the country have been telling us loud and clear they want us to use less plastic, and we agree. And so today... With today's announcement, we're taking 225 million plastic bags out of circulation annually at our Sobe stores, and we won't stop there. When does this take effect? So we're beginning with our Sobe's banner, taking 225 million plastic bags out of our stores by January 31st, 2020. But as you know, we have 1,500 stores across this country, and so we'll look to move to those stores after January. And once we do, we'll be eliminating over 800 million plastic bags annually. Wow. Pretty astounding number. Are you replacing those with paper bags? I was a little confused with the way that was put. Yes, it'll be about giving our customers choice. So when they come into our stores, they'll be able to take a paper bag or bring in their own reusable bag. For us, it's really not about the change from plastic to paper. The answer is reusable bags. Whole Foods gives out paper bags, and they're very, very good paper bags. I actually think they're better than the plastic. So is it going to be something like that, or is it just going to be kind of some interim thing? It'll be a a great paper bag. Right now, the paper bags that we have come from sustainably managed forests and mills that are committed to to using recycled content. I'm assuming that that uh, eliminates a cost as well. It's actually... It's not really about, for us, the cost. It's more about doing the right thing. Um, And I think it would cost us a lot more to do nothing. Right now, let's go to Michelle Gentner, who is the co-owner of Unboxed Market, and Keith Brooks, who is a program director at Environmental Defense. Let's start with you, Michelle. What do you make of this? Uh, I think it's great first steps. I think there is a lot still that needs to be done, um, but good for Sobeys for taking the initiative to eliminate some of the plastic from their store. Um, it's, uh, it's definitely a good start. Okay. Now, you started a whole business based on uh, no plastic bags, among other things that you don't have there. Absolutely. Yeah. The focus of our store is to eliminate single-use plastics and to avoid packaging in general wherever possible. Uh, We're far from the first. These stores exist all over the world. Ontario, sadly, doesn't have as many as we should, but it is definitely uh, something that's growing and something that is in a direct response to what we're seeing happen around the world with, you know, every piece of plastic that has ever been created exists still in some form in our uh, atmosphere, in our world. Keith, uh, what's your reaction? I think it's a it's a good step. It's a, a good announcement from Sobeys. Glad to see that they're taking this kind of voluntary action. 
Uh, they're getting out in front of, of regulation, right? I mean, the federal government has promised to ban a bunch of plastics and to take some other steps to deal with plastics similar to what they're doing in the EU. So I think, you know, Sobeys kind of saw the writing on the wall, but nonetheless, it's really good of them to take this kind of proactive uh, uh, step. The plastics industry is making huge profits. Their plan is to continue to make more and more plastic. They want to tell you that we can recycle everything, but we know now we're failing miserably on recycling. We need to reduce our use of plastic. And the other part, in addition to these, these bans or phasing out plastics, is we need to move to what's called extended producer responsibility, which is what your guest is getting at. But that the people that make and sell and make money from these plastics need to be responsible for dealing with them at the end of life. Instead of taxpayers paying for cleanups or just the environment being oh, like full the of Filipino plastic. garbage thing. Yeah, all of yeah. this, right? The companies that are making these products need to be held responsible, and that's what they're doing in the EU. That's what uh, the Prime Minister of Canada has promised we're going to do in Canada. Ontario is talking about that as well. And it's, it's a bit of a, a difficult concept. It's not good language, but it's, it's vitally important that we close the loop on this so that the companies that are making these things are financially and, and operationally responsible for dealing with them. And it's not the public's problem. And it's not leaking into the environment. Michelle, before you leave us, uh, how long have you been in business for? I, I, I pass your store when I'm on the way to work, but it's pretty new, isn't it? It's very new, yeah. We just opened in February. Um, we took over the old business here in October and uh, closed, renovated, and then opened um, the store the way that we wanted it just in February. So we're very new. We're still working out systems here, too. It's constantly a conversation with our suppliers and distributors to also have them understand why we're doing what we're doing. And that's going to continue to be a conversation because the plastics didn't come into our world overnight. So it's going to take a little bit of time to get people to understand why they now need to leave. And and just give me a a sense of the kind of uh, acceptance from the neighborhood and people shopping there. It's actually been mostly positive. We have uh, quite a few seniors in our area who definitely get the nostalgic part of you know, you can have your milk in glass and you can use paper bags and um, we we make sure that everything is fresh and everything is available um, locally as often as possible. So they have that part, component going for them as well. Um, a lot of people actually trek great distances to come to the store. Um, some of it for inspiration for their own communities and some of it because it's the closest place to them in Toronto that they can shop in a way that they recognize as um, um, environmentally conscious. There are obviously going to be people who are not happy. They, some people just don't like change. Some people want the status quo, and that's just something that um, is changing in all stores now. So hopefully, um, as it becomes more common, those folks will also uh, understand what's happening. Michelle Gantner, co-owner of Unboxed Market. Keith Brooks, Program Director at Environmental Defense. And Vittoria Virali, Sobeys VP of Sustainability. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Will the U.S. Democrats be able to mount a strong challenge to President Donald Trump in the 2020 election? It depends on who turns out to be their candidate. Right now, there is a huge field of two dozen hopefuls. On Tuesday and Wednesday nights this past week, Two Democratic debates took place with 10 candidates at a time. Frontrunners appear to be Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. 
Joining Libby on Wednesday following the first debate, Sean Spear, Monk Senior Fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute, and Tiana Lowe, a writer for the Washington Examiner in Washington. So the biggest winner of last night's debate wasn't on the stage. It was uh, former Vice President Joe Biden. You know, Congressman Delany, he uh, has failed to require even one qualified poll for the September debate. Um, he doesn't even have half the amount of the donor count required to qualify for the September debate. This is probably the last time we see him on the national stage ever. However, he pointed out extremely important flaws in Warren and Sanders' Medicare for All packages. Um, you know, it's a $32.6 trillion in a decade plan that right now the most generous tax that's been proposed is Warren's potentially unconstitutional wealth tax that would only acquire $2.75 trillion in a decade. So that's about 8% of Medicare for All. You know, where does the next 92% come from? Delany laying down that framework makes the case for Biden's electability. You know, he's one of the only major candidates who's not proposing abolishing private health insurance. And that's something that he will need to, you know, cede that Obama to Trump territory in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin in order to uh, unseat Trump from the Oval. So what I'm hearing from you is that health care is, is the main issue so far? Absolutely. I mean, among almost every single demographic, health care repeatedly gets touted as the most important issue more so than immigration, more so, far more so than climate, far more so um, than deficit spending. Healthcare is the one issue in the country that affects everyone, and it doesn't. And this is not just a matter of American interest, seeing as we're 4.4 percent of the world's population and 44 percent of the world's medical research and development. Ensuring that we still have the level of production and profitability in our health in our healthcare industry is important for the rest of the world. We are producing the world's cancer research. We are producing the world's uh, preventative care. So it's of interest to the rest of the globe that we don't kneecap our entire profit-motivated industry that is responsible for the majority of the world's medical patents. I want to bring in Sean Spear. How do you see it? What struck me uh, in the debate yesterday and, and probably again tonight is that for all of the talk of dysfunction um, and disruption within the Republican Party, uh, the Democratic Party is going through a similar process of soul searching. You know, what's striking to me is that in 2008, when Mr. Obama ran as a outsider candidate against uh, the then frontrunner Hillary Clinton, he ran, um, I, I think, self-evidently to the left of her. He was the progressive alternative to Hillary Clinton. And what's striking is in now in 2019, many of the positions that Mr. Obama uh, uh, advanced as part of his presidential election campaign would put him on the far right of the Democratic Party. It's just striking that in a relatively short period of time, um, uh, Mr. Obama has crossed the spectrum within the Democratic Party. And that was on display t- last night on issues ranging from uh, me- Medicare, as, as Tiana just mentioned, to uh, fairly radical views on uh, immigration and uh, and uh, uh, the American sovereignty and American borders. So uh, I think they seem to be on a path to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. Mr. Trump is a highly unpopular president, certainly, I think, uh, susceptible to to failing to be reelected. And yet I think if the Democratic Party continues down this path of fairly radical progressive politics, 
um, they will buttress uh, Mr. Mr. Trump's chances for re-election. Is there a chance that somebody will sort of break out from the pack aside from Joe Biden, Sean, do you think? I think that's possible. Uh, it depends in part, I think, on Mr. Biden's performance. Um, listeners will know that we're into the second round of debates, and I think there was a, a, a pretty broad perce- perception that Mr. Biden was a bit off his game uh, the first time around. I, I take for granted that he won't be caught off guard again this time. And if that's the case, uh, it, uh, as we head into the next round of debates in September, uh, he, he, I think he's in a position to to really distance himself from the pack. But if he stumbles, if he looks off, if he looks uh, complacent, um, then I certainly think there's an opportunity for someone like Kamala Harris to uh, to uh, start to play a greater role in this race uh, than, than current polling uh, would indicate. That was Libby Snymer's conversation on Wednesday ahead of the second debate with Sean Spear at the McDonald Laurier Institute and Tiana Lowe. From the Washington Examiner, I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. The long-term care system is strained but not broken. After more than a year, that was the conclusion of the four-volume, 1,500-page public inquiry into the safety and security of residents in the long-term care homes system. It also concludes that it was no one's fault that killer nurse Elizabeth Wetlaufer murdered eight people without raising suspicions. As part of a comprehensive analysis into the report's findings and recommendations, Libby Snymer spoke with a full panel of guests for reaction. She was joined by Marissa Lennox of CARP, A New Vision of Aging, Susan Horvath, whose father was killed by Wetlaufer, Laura Jackson, a friend to one of Wetlaufer's victims, lawyer Jane Medus at the Advocacy Center for the Elderly, Lisa Levin at Advantage Ontario, and the Minister of Long-Term Care, Dr. Marilee Fullerton. Let me just state really clearly that this was a horrible, horrific tragedy. And I I feel uh, my heart goes out to the families and everyone impacted by this. Uh, Just horrific uh, tragedy. And we need to take the recommendations in the report to heart. And that's what our government is doing. We're, we're committed starting with making sure that the family members and the loved ones and, and the surviving victim have counseling um, over the next uh, years, the coming years, uh, two years, to make sure that they are supported. Our government wants to make sure that they are supported and that we will act swiftly uh, over the next year and have a July 31st, 2020 report um, you know, outlining the uh, actions that we've taken starting now. We are now going to bring in Susan Horvath, and she is the daughter of Arpad Horvath, who was the last victim of serial killer nurse Elizabeth Wetlaufer. Hello, Susan. Hello. Uh, How are you feeling today? Do you have any kind of closure after this? No. One of the things that the report said, that it is not assigning blame that there are systemic vulnerabilities. Is that good enough for you? No, it's not. And I'll tell you why it's not. Um, Number one, also in the same report, which is a bit of a contradiction, uh, they did mention that back in 1900s, 1970s, there has always been medical murders. 
okay? They've always been reported and everything like that. It's been made public, number one. There are many lawsuits right now going on with nursing homes, left, right, and center, um, for all kinds of situations like this, abuse and what have you. Wet is not the first, she won't be the last. And then there has been family grievances as well, where families have come forward and tried to talk to nurses in the um, uh, nursing homes, and, and, and the families were sometimes shunned. And I mean, I could go on. I was in it, like right front and center with what happened. So all I'm saying is that, no, that is something I was shocked at, really shocked when I heard it, because there is blame. Again, we're taking the blame game away. The blame game has been played, the no blame game has been played through the entire inquiry. When we had the um, uh, coroner, uh, chief coroner up, we had the people from Meadow Park, from Crescent Care. We've had this cost a fortune. And all everybody's seen, okay, not the players, but what we've seen was that the ball was always being passed. I am also bringing in Lisa Levin, who's the chief executive officer at Advantage Ontario, which represents uh, the nonprofit long term care homes. Hi, Lisa. Oh. Hi, Libby. Lisa, we've been talking to Susan, uh, as uh, I'm not sure if you were listening to that, and she is very frustrated that no fault was found, not with anyone in the system, not with employers, supervisors, union reps, inspectors, regulatory uh, bodies, or anybody in the long-term care homes. Uh, What do you say to her? Well, first of all, I, I mean, I have to extend my deepest condolences. I cannot imagine going through what she's going through and the other families are going through. Uh, you know, you, you place your loved one in long-term care, you expect them to be cared for, and then there's a serial killer. So, you know, I, I think what the commissioner found is that long-term care homes, the ministry agencies who provide nursing, the home care sector, the LIN, the College of Nurses, and the chief coroner all have to make changes. And so... Uh, that's certainly not going to uh, bring back her late father or any of the other victims. Uh, but we need to make a lot of changes in the sector. And the ministry, uh, the Minister of Long-Term Care has said she's committed to looking at changes. And we just need to move forward uh, to do that. What do you see as the most uh, urgent recommendations? And, and also I'm wondering about the fact, you know, it says there has to be study on what an appropriate staffing level is. Uh, don't you think we know? I absolutely think we know. And um, it's a shame that we have to wait a year for that study because we do know that we need more staff in long-term care and we don't just need registered staff, we need PSWs. Now, this the commissioner was focused on registered staff because that is who the focus was here. Uh, and so she was trying to keep to her mandate. But absolutely one of the most urgent things that we need in long-term care is to have more staffing. We're going to bring in Jane Medes, who is a counsel with the Advocacy Centre for the Elderly. You've been hearing all of this. So what's your take? Well, I mean, I think that there's, you know, good and bad things with the report. Um, I think that definitely uh, we are dealing with systemic issues here. Uh, we do have to fix up the system. Um, I think with having the new Ministry of Long-Term Care, one hopes that's a positive in that it's been pulled out of the, you know, health care system where it used to sort of get a bit subsumed by some of the other things. So hopefully that means that she's got all of her attention in one place. Um, definitely we need more staffing. Um, 
I do think we de- need studying, though. I think that there's sort of a two-part thing. There's no question that we don't have enough staffing in long-term care, and we could add that immediately. But I don't think we really know how much time it takes to take care of a, a resident in long-term care today. Um, you know, there's a lot of numbers that get put around, but I've not ever actually seen somebody actually go in and do, like, an actual study. How long does it take to take care of that person? Um, I also agree that, you know, the report is, is very weak on talking about being critical of some of the people. It goes through some of the, you know, it goes through the evidence, um, and it sets out the facts as it was found, but it, it's not um, critical in the way I think it should have been. Um, Justice Scalise definitely said that, you know, the fact that they weren't finding misconduct didn't mean that there weren't individual shortcomings, but it sort of left in a way to the reader in a lot of cases to figure out what those were. I want to get to Laura Jackson, who is a close friend of one of the other victims, Morris Granat. Hi, Laura. How are you doing today? I'm okay. How are you? Thank you for having me. Uh, Thank you for giving us your perspective. And with everything that you've been hearing, are are you satisfied, particularly with the fact that this report really does not assign blame to anyone? There's a lot of culpability um, that that was left out. Um, And uh, I think that was uh, uh, the biggest downfall of the report. Uh Uh-huh. And what would you have liked to see? I would have liked to have seen um, the College of Nurses being held a little more responsible for their actions. Um, I would have liked to have seen, like uh, a previous caller said, um, more um, actual, not blame, but responsibility um, for what happened. Because there's checks and balances in the system. There's supposed to be checks and balances, and most of them were ignored in this case. I'd like to bring in Marissa Lennox. Hi, Marissa. Hi, Libby. Well, we have to remember, too, that Elizabeth Wetlocker was stealing hydromorphones from patients and then stealing it and sort of dealing it, too. So one of the recommendations in the report is to manage medication through the use of technologies. And there was one suggestion, too, that you could implement or put in glass doors, for example, in some of these homes. And that would try to prevent anything nefarious going on behind closed doors which obviously was something that Elizabeth Whitelocker had taken advantage of. Our special panel of guests this past Thursday following the release of the Long-Term Care Inquiry Report. Thanks to Marissa Lennox of CARP, Susan Horvath and Laura Jackson, whose loved ones were murdered, lawyer Jane Medes at the Advocacy Centre for the Elderly, Lisa Levin at Advantage, Ontario, and the Minister of Long-Term Care, Dr. Merrilee Fullerton. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Paul in Toronto called to offer us his early federal election prediction, including what impact Green Party leader Elizabeth May might have on the vote. I don't know much uh, about May's party. I I know May is a month in the spring. That's all I know about that party. Um, I don't think they're going to make any significant um, change in our uh, electric uh, election come October. But I think uh, what will probably happen here uh, come October 
October, we're probably going to see the Liberals uh, reduced to a minority government, which which is not a bad thing. I don't cheer. I don't think Sheer is ready um, to be the um, next prime minister. And I know um, uh, I, I, I believe the NDP is going to be a complete wipeout uh, after this election, uh, just by basing it on his performance. And we'll see if if I'm right or wrong. And now. Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Jean M. Palmerston, who is a nurse and a nursing advocate who called with her take on long-term care in Ontario. No homes should be allowed to be privatized for nursing homes because they're making a profit. Wellington County has one subsidized long-term care. It's an excellent facility because it gets funded to the tune of $7 million over and above the provincial base funding. And that all goes to the residents because they're not making a profit. These homes, they take their provincial funding. They pay for what they need for the patients. My father died in crescent care. My stepmother also died in crescent care. I had times my father was in the locked unit, which was inappropriately locked. When I worked in that home on the floor... We counted the time we had from supper time to getting people to bed. We had five minutes per residence, and that allowed us no time to go back to do second wet checks. So on night shift, when you arrived, those patients were all, the ones that were in Cotton were all soaking wet. The care is substandard. The Ministry of Health needs to step up to the plate and be what they call themselves, Minister of Health and Long-Term Care, and they need to take care of these people. These people created this country for us, and they're getting substandard care. That does it for this week's Best to Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightbackzoomer.ca and follow Follow us on Twitter at FightBackLibby. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again tomorrow for a special Simcoe Day Fight Back at noon. And again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi. With technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. <laughs>